Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we start season six of our podcast, which will cover the combined 1991 and 1992 winners. Today we're going to be discussing the 1991 Newberry Honor Book, The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle by Avi. Continuing with our season five tradition, unfortunately, we are not recording together, so we are not drinking together. I'm drinking plain old water that's not even cold. It's like, I, I, it's, I would say seawater temperature. It's not salty, but I would say seawater temperature. It would be like the water they drink on the ship. Yeah, briny and probably someone peed in it. Ew. <laughs> 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 okay. Well, I'm also drinking something appropriate. I'm um, just having some rum. And actually, I think when we do get the chance to have a drink together with this episode, we should either have a cocktail that I found called the Queen Charlotte. Ooh. Yeah. Sounds old timey, right? Or a brand of rum that I like called Sailor Jerry. <laughs> Sailor Jerry. It's called Sailor Jerry. It's actually pretty good. And then on the label, it is like a tattoo of a hula girl, which is not exactly perfect because I know that the tattoo mentioned in the book was um was a mermaid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was a mermaid, but it's close. I I just can't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I I don't think that any any captain named Jerry is striking fear in anyone's heart. Well, okay, it didn't. It's not. It's not Captain. Oh, we could do Captain Morgan, um, but this is Sailor Jerry. So I think he's just I'm one sorry, of like Sailor the Jerry. the deckhands, you know. So the goofy like dipshit deckhand. Yes, yes. Sailor Jerry. But that's a good point because there is Captain Morgan, which is another rum. Yeah, and he's got like uh, intimidating facial hair and stuff. Or maybe I'm just I'm I'm like switching him in my mind with Captain Hook. <laughs> I feel like Captain Hook and Captain Morgan are very similar, except that Captain Morgan is not scary. Like he's got the like pose, but I think he's just sort of steadying himself because he's a little tipsy. Oh, I thought he was. He does look very authoritative. Like I would do things he asked me to do. Hmm. I may not always like them, but I would do it. That sounds inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it that way, but it does sound inappropriate. Yes. So, so I have a portion of a book review from School Library Journal. It was published in September 1990. And The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. It was written by Trev Jones. A breathtaking seafaring adventure set in 1832, Charlotte Doyle, 13, returning from school in England to join her family in Rhode Island, is deposited on a seedy ship with a ruthless mad captain and a mutinous crew. Refusing to heed warnings about Captain Jaggery's brutality, Charlotte seeks his guidance and approval only to become his victim, a pariah to the entire crew, and a convicted felon. It's a little hard to just launch in the way that we usually do. With We're usually wondering, you know, did you like this book? Did you find it readable? But I think that this book is so uh, ubiquitous, in our age group as school reading that like, there's just no point in asking like, have you read it before? Do you like it? Because it's just, it's universal sort of at this point. We also really gushed and fangirled on Avi about this book. So if you listen to the Avi interview, (laughs) there's no mystery that we both are big fans of this book. Yeah. Um, And have been reading it for literally decades. I don't, I don't remember the first time I read it, but I 
I reread it for the, the Avi interview and then I reread it for this. And every time I just, I really, really love it more and more. And I know that Avi in his interview was like, I don't know what happened to Charlotte and that's her story. <laughs> and I mean, you know, very, very writerly, very professional, very, you know, but dude, I would kill for some more Charlotte adventures on the high seas. Like, oh yeah, that, I mean, just think about what kind of a money. movie that would make too. Oh goodness gracious. Why has no one done it? I, don't, I mean, but then you, then you get into like I don't know if anyone's made movies of Avi's books, well, have they? Actually, I read um, fairly recently about they were making a movie attempt at this, and Danny DeVito was going to direct it, and they had cast Morgan Freeman as Zachariah, and mm-hmm. uh, who did they cast somebody amazing as Jaggery too? But the people that they were casting as as Charlotte, like it took so long that they aged out of it. And they had several different people. Um, who is the girl that played um, Joe in the most recent Little Women? So you're thinking of Sorsha Ronan? Yes, yes. So she was the most recent one cast. And apparently they were like a couple weeks out from starting shooting. And then there was something that delayed the shooting. And that was like, I don't know, eight years ago. And there's just no update. Yeah. But they had cast all these amazing people and everybody was on board. They were literally ready to start shooting and something happened to prevent it. And it has just never happened. I mean, why not make Millie Bobby Brown Charlotte Doyle? Come oh on. Why not? She's can, Enola Holmes. She could do this. Can you imagine the HBO series? Yeah. I mean, like she would rock the shit out of this. I mean, you know, but I mean, there's other young actresses, I'm sure who could do it too. But I do think it would be an amazing movie or miniseries. Mm-hmm. And just, uh, yeah, I mean, make her a little bit older, right? If you can, t- okay, if you can make <laughs> Z for Zachariah with Margaret Robbie, who is like, when she was cast, was in her mid-20s and she's supposed to be like 14. That's a good point. You can fudge the story a little bit to make Charlotte a little bit older and, you know, make the movie. And actually, I think th- I think that even makes it make a little better sense because it makes it more logical that her parents would let her make that sea voyage by herself. I don't know. I mean, I think it was I understand what you're saying, particularly by like today's standards. But I think in the 1800s, I mean, if you were especially if you weren't the firstborn and you were a girl, it was like, well, you exist and we are we'll care for you. We're your guardians. But eh. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I think the thing that made the big difference is that the fam. So if you haven't read this book, I, one, I am shocked. Go read it. Two, <laughs> to, to cover a little bit of the plot at the beginning, she her family is moving home from England where they've been her whole life back to Providence, Rhode Island. And it's a long sea voyage at that at that time. And she is left to come on behind, mostly because her parents need to go back right away and they didn't want to interrupt her school year. And since the voyage coincides so nicely with summer vacation and they were very proper, so they really wanted her not to miss out a year of her schooling, they sent her along afterwards. But she was supposed to be accompanied by two other you know, high-class families with children. And of course, communication at that time was such that like there was no way to know or 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 converse about the fact that at the last minute they were prevented from traveling with her. So it's not like she had any way of them saying, oh, no, don't do it. Um, she just had to do what she was told, basically. And she, so she shows up and she's 
in her like travel clothes, which, you know, are like very girly, frilly things. And she finds out that the other families aren't traveling. And the guy who's accompanying her just is kind of like, well, bye. (laughs) Yeah. He's (laughs) like, I was told to put you on this ship. I'm putting you on the ship. See ya. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and as they're like trying to find the ship itself, people, when they ask about it, people are like not acting or reacting in ways that you want them to in a, in a way when you're about to board someone's ship. Right. Mm-hmm. So you get the sense very early on that Jaggery and his, his crew, his boat, like it's not a good place, much less a good place for like a 13 year old girl. No, uh, like grown, grown gnarly men who work on the docks literally drop her stuff and run when they hear his name. Like, yeah. Multiple times. <laughs> yeah. He's like a boogeyman. And so that's what's really interesting is so she she ends up on the ship. They take off. She's in this little room. She gets seasick, all this stuff. She meets Jaggery, and he's this kind of smooth, suave character. In my head, he looks like Captain Hook. He looks like what? In my head, he looks like Captain Hook. Oh, he does? You know, like the, the little like unctuous, too much kind of Disney cartoon Captain Hook. Okay. I mean, I think because in my head, Aiden Turner of uh, of Being Human, Hobbit, and Paul Dark fame, which I call Paul Dark and Handsome, <laughs> is anytime they say swarthy and like any remote maybe could be British, um, even though he's Irish, um, I just like put him in there. <laughs> and I... particularly because... Because he, in being human, does an incredible job of being really sexy and, like, very interesting. But also, like, there's this, like, you can tell just underneath the surface, he's extremely dangerous. You know who in my in my head, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, really thinking about it, if there was, like, an HBO miniseries, I think Henry Cavill. Oh, no. Well, yeah, with the, with the wig, though, and, like, the, the <laughs> waistcoat, like, the the 1830s trappings of being a sea captain. I mean, I'm not going to tell you not to have your fantasy. No, it's not a, no, no, it's not a fantasy. It's just like, that's, I think a good casting. I'm not saying it's wrong, but for captain Jaggery, I feel like Cavill is still, he's, he's too upstanding. Like there's just something about him, even when he was in mission impossible and he was like the bad, like a bad guy. Mm. It was like, I bought it kind of, but more like maybe someone told him that Tom Cruise like stole his pens out of his office and that's <laughs> why he was mad. Not like this like kind of like animalistic rage or passion, right? And so have you seen The Witcher? I don't I, I um I have not seen The Witcher. Okay. Henry Cavill in The Witcher is the only Henry Cavill that I like. And that's what I'm talking about. You know what I really enjoy as a side note about this book is that there's a lot of historical fiction out there and a lot of it's very well researched. But I find that a lot of times people are a little too dry or obvious about the historical parts or they disregard them completely and they just make up whatever they want that suits their idea of that time period. And I know that we gush about Avi, but his research skills are spectacular and his way of working the details in – 
makes you feel like you're there. Like that's one of the things that makes this book so readable because to use an example, when she is getting on the ship, they show her to her room and her room is a six by four foot by I think four foot hole basically, but it's totally accurate for the time. And it really makes you put yourself in her shoes as far as like this scary, dark, uncertain, uncomfortable position. It's not just how she feels about the situation, but like everything about it, there's roaches in her room and like, it's not tall enough to stand up properly in. And all these little things that are true about sea ships at that time and traveling in that way do so much to make the environment that, that Charlotte finds herself in. Yeah, I I really agree with you on that. And I think that that's something that I've always loved about Avi's books. And I may have even said this in the interview. I always feel like he trusts the reader. He trusts the reader to either look up what he's talking about or to just follow him and get the nuance of what he's talking about and maybe look it up later. Yeah. He can set the tone. He can set um, – he creates characters there's just so much in them and it's it's i mean this is probably obnoxious but it's it's a, it's magic i i you know there's just some people the way they write it's magic and even though i i feel like i've read his books for years now and i i still don't know how he pulls some of this off no like there are some people i think we've talked about this before there are some people whose books i love and i think their writing is magic too but like they have a specific voice that's constant in all their books. Like that's, I, and I, I definitely have talked about this before, but like, that's why you like it. You want more of that voice. Obvious books are different every time and every single one you're like, how did he do that? But in a completely different way, mm-hmm. it, it blows my mind. You're right. Well, and that's, you know, our last season we ended with Crispin. Mm-hmm. This season we're starting with Charlotte. And then, and then in like a couple episodes, we're going to do nothing but the truth. And those are all Avi's Newberry, the winner, and then the two honors. Mm-hmm. And they're all such drastically different books. It's, it's unbelievable the amount of voices and the amount of time periods that he spans in his work. Well, and the completely different tones the books take. Yeah. Yeah, because I think in, in other people's hands, like... I think it's very likely that I would be reading Crispin and be like, oh, this is just Charlotte, but like in the Middle Ages. Yeah, no. <laughs> and But he's sometimes he's a little too good at it. And Nothing But the Truth, I actually don't like that book. It's so well written, but I don't like it because he does too good a job and I really dislike the main character. Like he's made that character so real that I'm like, you're kind of a dummy. Like, like I just, <laughs> I don't like him as a person. And so that's why that's not my yeah. favorite book. A little more about the plot. So Captain Jaggery is schmoozing Charlotte. Mm -hmm. Charlotte becomes aware pretty early on that there's unrest among the crew. Kind of on her first day. Yeah, no, even on her first day, like basically her first moment on the ship, somebody drags her aside and is like, hey, you might need this knife. Yeah, well, it's given to her by Zachariah, who becomes a major character in the book. He is a... A black man. He's the only black man on the ship. Mm-hmm. He is very direct with Charlotte about the fact that he is the only black man and she is the only girl and about how they should have an alliance. Yeah, basically. And I, it's interesting because 
one of the things that I think makes this book really good as a teaching book, especially, you know, around the middle school age, is that they do not shrink away from discussing like gender roles and racial tension and things like that. Like it's very I feel like the book and Zachariah are both being very direct with the fact that people are ostracized for things that they can't control. Mm-hmm. And it's it's nice because the whole the whole framework of this is Charlotte telling her own story. So she she can be an unreliable narrator if you choose to look at her that way. Because I feel like Avi, as Charlotte, is using Zachariah's voice to be very direct in the same way that the character Zachariah is direct about things like race and gender. I agree with you. I would also add that I think that's one of the beautiful or one of the things that works really great in this book is that these issues are brought up, but they're brought up on in the sorry, they're brought up in a way of discussing humanity, mm-hmm. not identity. Yes. So Zachariah is talking about, you know, these are this is something that I can't hide. This is who I am. This is who you are. I see you immediately that you're the only woman or girl in the ship. And there's something really interesting about that being in a middle grade book and not being kind of spoon fed and broken down like you should say this or react this way to, you know, gender roles and kind of ideas about race. It's this is what was happening during that time. And this is the real people that were as they were, as you know, portraying real people as they lived. So they wouldn't have modern answers necessarily to, or modern reactions to these, these statements or these conversations. No, no. And the way that they show growth with respect to these issues is also great because it's not preachy at all, right? Like one of the kind of symbols of, of, Charlotte's girlhood is her hair that she's very proud of, right? And she keeps mentioning how, like, she has to take great care with it and she has to do all this stuff and it's kind of a hindrance, but, like, she's really proud of it. But it's in the same vein that she's, like, dressing up in the the trappings of her old life. And, you know, instead of explaining it too much, there's just a point where she needs to and she, like, chops it off. And it's such a nice metaphor. Well, it's during a storm. And that's one of my favorite scenes, actually. It's during a storm and her ha- and she's she's on the rigging and her hair is in her face and she can't see. And it's starting to endanger her like she's been blindfolded. And so she just like wraps her legs, uh, her legs and one arm around the rope. And then she just g- gathers her hair in her hand and just cho- like chops it off with a knife. Mm-hmm. And that's when you were like, Charlotte is now a pirate. Yeah. yeah. One, <laughs> that's a pirate move. And two, yeah. like there's this thing that she was so proud of before, but she sees now as so far from being something to be proud of, but like is actually endangering her life. And it's such great symbolism without being preachy at all. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just masterful. Yeah, just like, so a little bit more about the plot. So when Charlotte first meets with Captain Jaggery, he's like, if you ever see a round robin, then let me know. And so round robins are a circle with four names in them and then a symbol in the middle. And that is like a, it's an agreement to mutiny. And those are the leaders of the mutiny. And so she ends up 
telling on some sailors that are plotting this. <sighs> Captain Jaggery comes out triumphant and stops the mutiny. She is considered a traitor. So she's ostracized from the crew because she told yeah. on them. And then she is she's lost Jaggery's favor because she tries to speak up for the men. Yeah, and in a really it turns violent, right? She tries to take this whip away from him because he's going to whip Zachariah, which she recognizes as unjust. And in trying to take the whip away from him, it it hits his face, right? So she has injured him in front of the crew, which for him is this incredible injury that he cannot forgive. Yeah, so she is, so she's out of favor. And so she decides that she's going to become part of the crew because through a series of events, it, it seems that Zachariah has been killed. Yeah, so. they, they think he's been whipped <clears throat> to death and they throw a body overboard or what looks like a body. And she has made the whole crew understaffed to the point that like they can't really function. So she take you know, she takes off her frilly things and she's like, I'm going to be one of the crew now. And the crew is like not having it. They're like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. But they give, let her do the test that they give to all green sailors, which is to like climb the mast. And the description of that is so good too. Like you can see it. If you're just like, oh, yeah, you have to climb the mast, you're like, I could do that, whatever. But if you read the description, it's so harrowing and so terrifying in itself, but also in the fact that, like, if you actually accomplish it, then what you're winning is just the right to do it, like, 100 times a day. So it's not like you do this once and you're done. It's like, okay, you do this once, you get a taste for it, and you still are willing to do the job. That's, mm -hmm. that's what she's doing. Well, they start teaching her to be a sailor because now that she's sort of passed their test and in so doing insulted Captain Jaggery way more because like her declaring that she's going to be part of the crew is one thing. But like when she tells him in front of everybody, she insists that her father, who is like a stakeholder in this company of the ships, would absolutely approve of what she's doing. And it it poses him right like he can't. He doesn't in the moment have a good response and he doesn't say anything. And that situation is unprecedented for the crew, right? And so by basically, I mean, pardon my language, but just ass facing him in front of everybody, they're like, hell yeah, you're on board. And so they start, instead of being reluctant, enthusiastically teaching her everything she needs so that she can be a full member of the crew. Yeah. And then there's a big storm. Huge storm. Hurricane. Huge, huge storm. And that's where she ends up cutting her hair off in that very, it's a very cinematic moment. It is. So Captain Jaggery makes this very controversial choice and he's arguing with the first mate about it because they're behind on their voyage and he's known for like very fast and profitable trips and his reputation depends on that. So he's choosing to sail into a hurricane, hoping that it's going to sort of gunshot sling them home, but it's super dangerous. And the first mate is arguing with him, which he finds infuriating and insubordinate. And he also is aware that if things go wrong, Either they sink, in which case, whatever. But if they don't sink and they're just damaged and super slow, the first mate is able and very uh, willing to tell the company that owns the ships that 
that Jaggery, the captain, made this very risky decision and it turned out very badly. So Jaggery, during the storm, kills the first mate. Yeah. And then blames it on Charlotte. And it's this wonderful little plot tangle, right? Like it's a very clever way to do this because when she first got on board, Zachariah gave gave Charlotte a dagger and she immediately took it to Jaggery and was like, I'm not cool with this. And he's like, no, keep it. But so he's seen the dagger. He knows that she has it. The crew knows that she has it because they saw her walking back and forth with it on the way to the captain. Now, Zachariah, it appeared that he was whipped to death and thrown overboard, but he was not. He's alive. And the captain realizes this and the crew knows this. But Charlotte didn't realize it. And so the captain is taking the opportunity to basically frame Charlotte for a murder that he knows that she didn't commit because the crew thinks Zachariah did it and wants to protect him and protect the fact that he is still alive and hiding below decks. Mm -hmm. And so when Charlotte's put in the brig, which is, oh, God. The description of that is so good. (laughs) It's so so good. It's so scary. (laughs) It's this cage, it's this cage in the pitch black and all you can hear is rats and like the slop of the bilge underneath you like splashing back and forth and it smells terrible and it's terrifying. But so when we were in the Bahamas and my parents were like, what's next? Right across from the rum cake factory, which I also enjoyed, let me tell you, is the pirate museum. Which sounds very jolly, but is really uh, very scary and awesome. And it shows you what the insides and the bowels of pirate ships were like back in the day. And so if you've seen the models of these ships, and you can get past the sort of Disney version of pirates in your head, you realize that these ships were dank and dark and moldy and and the bottoms insides of them were so like small compared to what you really think they were. And it makes it so easy to imagine this brig as like this disgusting, scary, dark, dank space. It's just amazing. Once Charlotte's in the brig, Zachariah actually reveals himself and where we as the readers come to understand that Charlotte now understands a lot more about prejudice about what Zachariah has tried to share with her about being a black man on the ship, being the only black man on the ship. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where she realizes that the crew has been, have been protecting him because they think he killed the first mate. And he offers to, he offers to like testify. And she's like, no, you can't do that. It's, you know, you're a a black man, a common sailor testifying against a white officer. And she, she's just like, she doesn't have the heart to finish because she knows what that means. Yeah. And I think this is the first time in the whole book that she's actually treating him like an equal, even earlier on in the book, like she's offended that he wants to make friends with her. Like she's holding herself above him in a lot of ways for a long time. And that seems like just sort of this bias in the book to be sort of historically accurate. But it's nice, even if it's not necessarily realistic, I think, in modern terms, for that to have happened historically 
Like, it's nice that it happens now in the book. I mean, I think you're right, and that's where I go back and forth. But I do think that there's something really interesting about the fact that Zachariah himself brings up that he's black. Well, he's so aware of it, right? Well, that, the awareness, but also it gives Charlotte permission to put it in her narrative. Yeah. And actually deal with it as a topic, which I I think that there would have been a lot more artifice. It would have read a lot differently if she had just been the one that was always hyper aware of it. Although, to be fair, like the framing of this, again, is her writing her story. So maybe she put that in. Right. Like maybe she put that in to give herself permission. Maybe. I don't know. I feel I feel very on the side that she's a reliable narrator. I mean, I mean as much as a, as much as a narrator can be reliable as in as much as a person can be reliable in their own life, right? Yeah. Who's really truly trying to tell the right like tell the correct story or what they remember. It feels authentic. Um, it does feel authentic, but there are enough times during it that she mentions like falsifying the ship's log to make it seem like somebody was okay or like not to say ill of the dead or whatever that I wonder if that's like a hint. Hmm. I never thought about that. I think I've always been taken with the idea of this like 13-year-old girl pirate that I was just like, yes, I believe you in everything you tell me. I do too. (laughs) I love her so much. But at the very beginning of the story, she's like, I've got a right to tell this story, even though it happened many years ago. So at the time that she writes the story, she's not a 13-year-old pirate. She's like a 30-year-old pirate or whatever happens to her. And so I think in the story the frequent mentions of things like the fact that she's writing a diary and keeping that truthful and the fact that she at some points is in charge of the ship's log or the captain is in charge of the ship's log and they're intentionally making it sound more G-rated than it really was. It's just, it's giving you the option to think of her as one way or another. Not that she's doing wrong things, but that she might be making things sound better in retrospect than they really were. That makes sense. And I now have a different perspective <laughs> on this book. And the next time I read it, which will probably be in a year, another year or two, I will definitely keep that in the back of my mind. That's that's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. <laughs> also, I feel like appearance versus reality is kind of a fun theme in this book. Yeah, that is true. And like one of the ways that that is fun, and I think this is a more obvious um Reference. Are, you about the, are you talking about the face in the cargo hold? No, but oh my God. That was so scary. <laughs> was so scary. Um, it's like, it's one of those like novelty coconut faces, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even just a coconut that's been carved. Yeah. So yeah, we have failed to mention entirely that there's a stowaway who's another pirate, but that's a whole thing. But <laughs> you, can't, you can't tell everything about the book because no, no one's no. going to read it or they'll read it and be like, oh, I know everything. This is true. Okay. Well, the thing I was talking about is that one of the things that makes her trust Captain Jaggery in the beginning is that he has the p- appearance of a gentleman, right? He has the appearance of being uh, refined and genteel and everything that the other pirates are not or the other sailors are not. And there's this wonderful, like, middle school essay metaphor that happens, right? Where 
once she's become disillusioned and once the storm has happened and the shit has hit the fan, she goes to see him in his cabin and she realizes that whether he's always been this way or the storm made it happen, like nothing is genteel or good. Like all of his, his seams are frayed, his buttons are off, the paintings in the cabin are awry, like his chess pieces are like salt shakers and little broken things. Like nothing is the way that she thought. And it's just this fun, I mean, literarily fun, <laughs> not fun for her, metaphorical moment of sort of the scales dropping, right? Like she becomes aware in in so many different senses that, that this man is not what she thought he was. Yeah, and I, I definitely pick up on that, like, with other characters and within the narrative. And it, you're right, it's an incredible part of the story. I just never applied it to Charlotte herself. Mm. <laughs> I guess so what I, I guess what I'm saying is like so there's the the stuff you notice when you're younger, right? It's stuff you notice when you're 13. You're like, oh, yeah, it was really all tattered and worn and she didn't know. But now she knows. But like the older we get, the more you're like, oh, she's telling this story when she's our age. Like, what would you change? What would what would you do to make yourself sound like sound better or feel better or justify your actions in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, it could be all of those things. It could, or it could be none. This could be a straight story of exactly what happened, but there's no way to know, and that makes it fun for me. So this becomes the record. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, this so is... It, is, it is the truth. It just may not be the truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's another thing I was thinking about. It's the one thing that even approaches a plot hole in this story, which is... When she returns home after all this has happened, she's got this journal that she was keeping the whole time that her father asked her to keep. And he was like, oh, I'll be checking your, you know, spelling and punctuation when you get home. And she keeps writing in it, but she sort of forgets the fact that her father, her very proper father is going to be reading this. And so when she gets home and has survived all of this, he reads it and She's prepared to discuss it with him, but he throws it in the fire and burns it and says, we are never speaking of this again. I can't believe your school taught you to write such lies, right? So there's that record of the journey, but there's also the ship's log, right, in which there have been there have been amendments, right? Like the captain said that people fell overboard when really they were killed. And he was prepared to do that about Charlotte herself. And she did that about him. But there's also facts that are in there about things that happened in her narrative, in her journal, that she didn't purge, right? Like there's the fact that the captain died. There's the fact that she became a captain herself at the end. Like these are things that her father would sort of have to accept as fact because they're in the ship's log, but it doesn't agree with her journal, but also neither of those things agree with the version of truth that her father's willing to accept, right? Like, he is part of the company that owns these ships. And so the captain's log is part of the official record of the journey that he's forced to accept. But that has things in it, even though it's been sort of cleaned up and tidied. But even that has things in it that he would refuse to accept. So there's all these different records and different versions of the truth. I don't know. I just find it fascinating. <laughs> no, and I, I think that that's, I mean, I think that is... 
I think in the past and even with this reading, the strength of the book, it's always been with Charlotte's voice. And so it's interesting because you're right. I mean, I can totally see the amending and the kind of telling different stories and different truths and different ways of kind of massaging words and stuff like that. And so I think because I read it so early, I did have it in my brain of like Charlotte's the truth teller. But I think there's a lot to be gained by questioning that. And I think I think you're right. And I'm excited to read it again another time. <laughs> but but I still I love do. Charlotte. I still think she's oh, telling yeah, the truth. Yeah. It's just it's her truth. And she may not even know that she is amending it because right. if she's if she's writing it from when she's an adult you write what you remember. Right. And it may not be that you're on purpose making yourself look a certain way or making things look a certain way. It's just the way you remember it. Exactly. And I think over time, like you sort of massage facts in your head where you're like, okay, I have faults and I'm going to admit these faults, but like you still, nobody's ever the villain in their own story. Right. So I'm not saying she's a villain, but like in, in tiny things like the racial relations between her and Zachariah, I could see how you would in your head maybe make yourself more comfortable by feeling like he had given you permission to feel differently about race or act differently about race. You know, it's not good, but I could see how that would happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also, I think that by the end, and I think this is a really important part, and strangely, I feel like, you know, this year's winner, Maniac McGee, has a similar theme, Mm -hmm. which is like an independent kid, an independent child. But I don't feel sad. I feel heartened by Charlotte's independence. I feel really heartened by her independence because I feel like she has decided her course for her life. She has left her family and she's coming home to the Seahawk and she's going, she's, she's going home to the sea with Zachariah is kind of a, I would say surrogate father. Yeah. Or mentor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, yeah, it was nice because like the whole thing is her trying to like survive the journey basically, but she's so confined when she gets home and like that's, Again, Avi does this amazing job of making you feel like for everything from the clothes to the rooms to the the behavior of her parents is just like restricting her in every way. And it's it's nice to have it just so clear that that is not where she belongs. Mhm. And that she recognizes it and just goes for it. <laughs> yeah, she's too big now. She's not just older and more mature. Like she's, her world has gotten bigger than the the rooms that she's, they're trying to confine her into and the roles. That action at the end makes me, or goes the furthest toward making me feel like her account was a straightforward account because she just goes for like the truth of what she feels right she just it's very simple and straightforward and she's just like nope i'm done i can't this this is not where i belong i know where i belong i'm going there's a really good appendix in the book um at least in the edition that i have and i'm assuming that it's in all the editions hopefully it is it should be it's in mine and it's got diagrams of the ship so the whole external 
like kind of long shot of the ship with the uh, the the names of the the sails and the names of the parts of the ship and then you have the deck and the bowsprit and the mainmast and they're all labeled and then you get into ship's time so it explains how sailors divide up their time at the sea and what the the bells mean so these are all things that are mentioned throughout the book and you know I'm just always a big fan of of including more information. I have one read alike for the true adventures of Charlotte Doyle. It's called The Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy by Mackenzie Lee. And it's the second book in the Montague Siblings series by this author. So the first one focused on Monty, the older brother, who it it was called The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. And it's about him falling in love with his best friend and they're on this big adventure and his sister Felicity joins them and they traditionally didn't get along, but they become kind of friends during the voyage. And so this book is specifically focused on Felicity and she ends up through many twists, ends up on a huge romping adventure with her childhood best friend who she'd been estranged from and a pirate, a, a, a pirate who is a woman. So there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of talk about gender roles and there's also discussion of race and race relations and attitudes. And it's just an awful lot of fun. Also the main character, she is, she's asexual or ace and so that's an interesting twist on this because she is she what what kicks off her original adventure and her leaving Edinburgh where she was working in a, a bakery and trying to get into medical school is a proposal from the baker. And she realizes that she just cannot do that. And then it's it's kind of a self journey as she's on this big adventure with her mates. That sounds awesome. Who writes those? Mackenzie Lee. Hmm. I am completely unfamiliar with those, but I'm going to have to look them up. Yeah. The first one is super awesome. The second one, I I think I love the first one a little bit more, but the second one is really, really good too. So of course I, you know, mentioned it. So that kind of sounds like if Howl's Moving Castle took a totally different turn. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, my read likes are not super alike, but um, as far as sort of the same age range or maybe skewing slightly younger chapter books about sea journeys, got uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, just because the the only thing that really reminds me in the same way of this book is just sort of like all the bits and pieces of the ship and traveling on the ship. And of course, it's much more idealized and there's no brig. <laughs> As far as I recall, anyway. But then also Journey of the Frog by Gary Paulson, which if you have read Hatchet, which I recommend, or any of the other books that he writes about, like Brian's Journey and all of those books, they're all survival survival stories. And Journey of the Frog is one that has to do with sailing, right? So it's it's got the same... I would say reading level and a little bit of the same tension because of course he runs into these horrible disasters and he has to survive, but so does Charlotte and the, the dangers are more environmental than pirates, but it's still a fun read and a really like nice, tense, gripping read. Cool. 
Yeah. I'm excited to check those out. <laughs> so normally at this time, we kind of give a review about our drinks. Um, how's your water treating you? Um, it's not bilgy, so that's good. <laughs> not brackish? No, not brackish or bilgy or smelly. So, I mean, I feel like that's a win. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I'm still sipping on my rum, which I'm enjoying, and uh, Sailor Jerry, Sailor Jerry, <laughs> it's definitely probably making me more chatty than usual. So it, it works considering how many confessions happen in this book. Thank you for listening to our first episode of season six of the Newberry Tart Podcast. We talked about the true adventures of Charlotte Doyle by Avi. Next up is the winner from the 1991 year, and that is Maniac McGee by Jerry Spinelli. And this is a combo season, so after that, we're going to go into the 1992 honor books and then the winner. So thanks so much for listening. Please rate and review us on iTunes and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It keeps us going and helps people find the podcast. Bye. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.